If you would like more information about Jubilee Church, please visit our website at jubileestl.org. Good morning. It wasn't a snide remark. I simply said I got promoted. I used to be a father, now I'm a grandfather. And grandfathers have more fun than fathers, I think. Uh, I think it was John Wimber, maybe, who said uh, that if he knew grandkids would be so much fun, he'd had them first. <laughs> well, it's great to be here uh, again and, and uh, see you all. Great family. I had the privilege uh, a little over a year ago speaking at the same conference that Brian's speaking at today, a higher ground leadership conference. It's a very inspiring place to be. They're planting churches all over Europe. Uh, it's um, with good friends, uh, Dave Holden, who leads that family of churches. And I know Brian is, and Dylan are being an amazing blessing there. We're so blessed to have such great leaders among us. Uh, so pleased with these guys. And uh, I know what's happening right now. Brian will preach four meetings today. Uh, he'll be a tired puppy when he crawls on that airplane. <laughs> But I know he'll be a blessing. Years ago, there was a pastor in England named Charles Spurgeon whose uh, church grew phenomenally. As a young man, he saw a handful in his church grow to 6,000. That is absolutely incredible. And when he speaks about it, it's interesting. He, he, he doesn't write some church growth book and simply say, uh, these are the strategies we used. We did this and that. He simply, let me, let me tell you what he said. I'll quote it. He says, the prayer meeting ought to be very precious to us, to be cherished very much by us as a church, for to it we owe everything. When our little chapel was all but empty, was it not a well-known fact that the prayer meeting was full? And when the church increased and the place was not large enough, it was the prayer meeting that did it all. And he's really saying, God really blessed. God causes us to be fruitful. God gave the increase. You see, I can't overemphasize prayer. Prayer's not like a magic wheel of fortune and you, you spin it and hope your number comes up every now and then. Maybe God will actually take time to listen to you now and then. It's, it actually is an act of, of express dependence. It's saying, I need you, Jesus. I know that you have everything I need. I trust your will. Uh, that even, even if I pray self-motivated, unsanctified prayers, you don't discard them. You clean them up and give me what I need. And so I, I, I trust you. I'm dependent on you. Prayer is a demonstration of a, a space when a church prays that we will never be content with what we can produce. Now, we might be on our own. Now, on our own, with great leaders and skilled and wonderful volunteers and people working, children and and. Uh, the worship guys and all that, we get all this, you know. But, but prayer is basically saying, though we are blessed with all of these wonderful gifts that God has given us in people, in you, in each other, that we will not be content with what only we can produce. We need only what God can produce. God only can produce. Prayer is also not a last resort activity. I, it's funny sometimes when I'm talking to people and they're in a tight spot, things have gone bad, and uh, they kind of sometimes will say, well, I guess there's nothing to do now but pray, which means I've exhausted all my self-help and skills, 
and as a last resort, maybe God. When in fact, prayer ought to be like the first activity. It's where we begin life, uh, we, we begin our day with. It's, it's the person that we go to first. And prayer is also an act of worship. And I'll get into a little bit more of that in just a minute. And it's, it's a statement of trust in the sovereign God who can do anything. And so when I'm praying, I'm expressing faith, trust, worship, dependence, and that's the way the church is to be. It's the way our life is to be. Nowhere does the value of a praying church emerge more uh, profoundly, I think, than in the narrative that you find in the book of Acts. Because the book of Acts, as you turn page after page, is basically just prayer activity and, and God leading and God guiding and the church advancing. And in the face of opposition, difficulty, new fields opening up, it's, it, just, it demonstrates, the book of Acts demonstrates how a church really works with its dependence on God and God's powerful presence moving in and through us. It's more than a history, in other words. It's, it's something that we, we can learn from here today. It's a chronology of prayer-based activity. Now, I don't have time to go through the entire book of Acts and, and talk to you about all the places where they, as a church, prayed. But the church began as an extended prayer meeting in Acts 1, so they were devoting themselves to the apostles' prayer. Can I tell you, that's how this church began? It came out of a prayer meeting. We're praying with a group before we ever moved here. And God led us to come and start Jubilee Church. Not only that, not only was the church started as a result of prayer, it has been sustained in advance by people who pray. And many times when we've gathered as pray, God spoke to us prophetically and gave us next steps and directions and things of that nature. It's why we're all here. It's why many hundreds of lives have been transformed and changed because we expressed our dependence on God, and God caused us to be fruitful. And they prayed. They prayed in their homes. The Bible says they devoted themselves to prayer. When it comes to choosing leadership, and uh, what is interesting is how they chose leadership. This is their leadership choosing uh, portfolio. Are you ready? It says in Acts 1, 24, and they prayed and said, you, Lord, who know the hearts of all, show us which one. That's a novel idea. God knows who. And that's how they chose leadership. It's wonderful. They prayed. They gathered in homes. And on the way to a prayer meeting, something happened. Peter and John looked down, and they see a guy who'd been stationed there like a piece of the landscape for years, over 40 years old, and he was lame. And everyone in town walked past this guy. Everyone in town knew this guy. He'd been lame since birth. He's plus 40-some years of age. And they said, we don't have any money, but we have something in the name of Jesus, rise and walk. And he did, and he was reasonably enthused about it. And he was making lots of racket, jumping and praising God, and then everyone knows who this guy was. And a crowd gathered, and they preached the gospel. And the Bible says... 5,000 people became followers of Jesus that day. That's a reasonably good Sunday. (laughs) Well, as a result of this, the priestly rulers and uh, people who were in charge of things, actually the people who conspired to get Jesus crucified, they had a lot of political power. 
And these are the guys who could take your life, really. They could drum up false charges and get rid of you. They showed up, and they, they saw what was going on, and they arrested Peter and John. That's chapter 3. So we've gone 1, 2, 3. We're moving through Acts. We'll stop at 4. They arrested them. Now, the next day, they had a trial. And they have a real dilemma. They're asking, by what power have you done this? You, and they realized they were uh, uneducated people. And uh, you know, they spoke powerfully and profoundly. You know, Peter, standing full of the Holy Spirit, makes his defense be- before this court, this little trial. And these rulers perceived these guys have been with Jesus. Wouldn't that be great if people could say, these people are Jesus' people. They've been with Jesus. They went off and had a little private conflab the rulers, and trying to figure out what to do with these guys. And they said, everyone in town knows this guy. And a notable miracle has taken place. That's a powerful good deed. And like, what are we going to do? We are in, what, what are we, what, we can't just sentence them as criminals. So I'll tell you what we'll do. We will release them with this purview. We will tell them they cannot by our authority, preach and teach in the name of Jesus anymore. Now, this is a powerful threat because these guys have the power to, it would seem, take your life. And then they released them. Now, what is going to happen is interesting. But the scripture says, when they come back, they call all their companions together. Now, I'm going to read the scripture so you know that, I, that this is in the Bible. Okay, you ready? Acts chapter 4, verse 24. I think it'll go up on your screen there. Wonderful. I feel like a miracle worker. I can just do that. <laughs> there it is. It says, and when they were released, they went to their friends. That is the church, people. That's their relationships with. And reported what the chief priests and elders had said to them. And when they heard it, they lifted their voices together uh, to God and said. So this is a fairly passionate prayer meeting because this whole group, now they lift their voice and expressing this prayer. I'm interested in what they prayed. And if you'll get interested, this can change your life today. It will affect you greatly. This is what they said. Sovereign Lord, you made the heavens and the earth and the sea and everything in them, who through the mouth of our father David, your servant, said by the Holy Spirit, why did the nations rage and the people's plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers against and gathered together against the Lord and against his anointed. For truly in this city they were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed with both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the people of Israel, to do whatever your hand and plan had predestined to take place. Now, Lord, look upon their threats and grant to your servants to continue to speak the word with all boldness. While you stretch out your hand to heal and signs and wonders are performed through the name of your holy servant, Jesus. And when they would pray, the place where they were gathered together was shaken and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and continue to speak the word of God with boldness. Now you may wonder how all this relates to you, and hopefully you find that it does. I just want to work through what they did and how it can affect you personally. First of all, the Bible says their first action when they went in trouble, 
When difficulty came was they gathered with their friends. You see, they reported all that had transpired. They were open with what they were going through and the kind of trial that they were experiencing. You see, that's what the church is. The church is not a meeting. It is not a building. The church is a community of people that Jesus has tied together in a family kind of way, in relationship. And that's why community groups are so important, because it's really there that you get to know people. You don't get to know people really well in a big meeting like this, but you really do there. You get to know people in the community groups and part of it, and where you can begin to share your heart and pray for one another and, and assist one another. The church is a community. And uh, I find it really interesting when Greg introduced me, especially in the first meeting. I liked that introduction. He called me a father. And he said, well, actually a grandfather. Because that's familial language is really what the church is about. In this church right here, we have children and we have brothers and sisters. I'm talking about spiritually. We have spiritual uncles and aunts, funny granddads. <laughs> and that's what we are. As a church, that's where, and we care about one another. And relationships are the key to life. I mean, Ecclesiastes tells us, chapter 4, verse 9 and 10, it says, Two are better than one, for if they fall, one will lift up his fellow. But woe to him who is alone when he falls, and he doesn't have another to lift him up. If one falls, the partner may help him. Linda and I, <laughs> I'll just throw this in, we were... Uh, 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 preaching uh, a conference on Copper Island, which is off the coast of British Columbia, and it had no electricity or anything, but the people that built this big camp, they were pretty innovative, and they had a big battery pack and generator, and they could charge up these batteries. You could have lights and things, but they wanted to conserve them, and I just finished a meeting, and we were on a little bitty rustic cabin out on the point looking out over the water. Really nice, but pretty rustic. And there's a, the swinging bridge that went across the gorge where there was the sea going back and forth. And it didn't really have any rails on it, just a swinging bridge. Does that say anything? And we're walking across. Linda's in front of me because I always let the lady go first. <laughs> And the proprietor decided that the meeting was over and he killed the lights when we're in the middle of it. And I said to Linda, you go on. Two are better than one. If you fall, I'll help you. <laughs> she didn't think it was funny. <laughs> it's evident we made it across. Slowly, but we did. Relationships are also the key uh, to multiplied strength. It's Deuteronomy 32 tells us that one has chased a thousand and two put 10,000 to flight. And there's just a multiplication of strength and courage and faith when we are together. Power is multiplied when we pray. I know when I pray, God hears me. There's power there. But I also know when we pray together about an issue, it's just a multiplied strength is there in this community. They were together multiplied together in prayer. They, they lifted their voices. Their prayer was passionate and intense on behalf of God's purpose. We have a little motto in our family of churches. Now, globally, we're part of family churches, basically new frontiers. The U.S. side of this is called confluence. But we say we are more together than we are apart. Can I just say that's also true in this church? The more we are connected intimately together, the greater we are. If we're just individuals, 
2,000 bricks on the ground do not a building make. But when cemented and joined together into a structure, there you have a building. And the same would be true for a church. 2,000 people is not a church. It just may be a bunch of isolated bricks. It's when we're joined together in relationship that we've taken on a form and structure that represents what God's called us to be. When we, next week, we're going to be pretty excited about celebration. We've been doing it for years. When we meet the Midwest churches of Confluence, we'll come together. And it's like a big family reunion. If you've never been there before, you'll meet some new people, fun people. Uh, We'll enhance your life. Maybe a place where you can go on vacation. I don't know. You will meet people. But we always do uh, one of the sessions at Celebration is prayer night. We do that at every conference that we've ever had. We just, no speaking, we're going to pray into who we are together and our mission together. And it's amazing how we've advanced in that. But Jubilee also, did you know Jubilee was, uh, we advance every time we pray together. It seems like God speaks to us and encourages us. And sometimes he gives us crucial direction in the midst of our corporate prayer together. We hear words and pictures and things like that. And what I love about this corporate prayer meeting is it's actually worship. You don't really find a petition until you get to the very end. The whole prayer is nothing but worship. And can I just take you through that real quickly? Because I think if you'll do that, it'll change the way you pray, and it will really have a powerful impact on your life. The first thing they did when they prayed, in verse 24, they, they lifted their voices together, and they said, Sovereign Lord. That's how they started praying. Sovereign Lord. Now, that's a big statement. Sovereign Lord. This is what sovereign means. It means nothing happens outside of God's influence or authority. It means he really is the King of kings and the Lord of lords. Sovereign Lord. Means there is no limitation in him and that he is present everywhere and that he is immortal and that he is all-powerful, and that he knows all things, and that he can do all things, and is in control of all things, and is the ultimate source of power and authority, and everything exists. That's what it means, sovereign. If you start there, and you begin to see how big God is, it changes When you get to your petition, it'll change it. You see, oftentimes we start with our problem, our petition. It's right here in front of us, and it's bigger than life. It's like this. And God's somehow lost behind it. And our problem is big, and God is small. But if you start the way they prayed, sovereign God. It kind of blots out. The circumstance gets smaller as God gets bigger to you. It's the way we start. Don't start with your problem. Start with sovereign God. Now, they're driven there by opposition, but they didn't pray, God, we have opposition. They started sovereign God. I love this interesting scripture in Galatians 4. It says, in the fullness of time, God sent his son. And I thought about that. What does that mean, fullness of time? And I may not really know what that means, except I looked back and I thought about history, as it were, when Jesus came. What made it the fullness of time? God has this plan. He's marching things forward. Fullness of time. Well, when Jesus was born, Rome had conquered the world. 
and they are great road builders, and they had paved roads throughout their empire. So you had all kinds of access and egress because they had made these roads throughout the world. Not only that, they had an amazing postal system. And so before they'd conquered the world, why, there's no, it was very difficult to communicate. Now you can communicate anywhere in the world, great postal system. Not only that, they had ridded the seas of pirates and, and much of the land of robbers, so it was safe to travel pretty much by water and sea. Well, and besides that, 334 years before Jesus was born, Alexander the Great had conquered the world and had established kind of what a universal Greek culture and Greek language was, a, was like kind of the language of the world. Now, people spoke their own languages, but it's kind of like English. Everywhere you go around the world, you can find people who speak English. And so now there's kind of a common language to communicate. And then 280 years before Christ came, the... Uh, in Egypt, the Old Testament was translated into Greek, so therefore it's accessible. Now I'm beginning, the lights are coming on. In the fullness of time, Jesus came. And therefore, we the church back then could go anywhere in the world. There were highways and roads. There were ships. There were postal systems so letters could be written. And it's reasonably safe to travel. Not only that, a common language was available. Yeah, how can he get it? It's like... Maybe God planned all of this. What do you say? He did. It's amazing. He's sovereign. I think it's interesting to <laughs> how God used, he uses everybody. Caesar had a, had a great idea. He says, you know what? Let's take a census. I want to see how big my empire is. And then we can tax everybody. We want to tax everybody. That means everyone has to kind of go back to a particular home of origination. Wow, long before Caesar had that brilliant idea, the prophets had prophesied that the Son of God would be born in Bethlehem. The only problem is Jesus, Mary, was pregnant with Jesus, and she lived in Nazareth. Guess what? This whole brilliant idea of Caesar dictated that Mary had to make the trip to Bethlehem to be born and fulfilled prophecy. I wonder where Caesar got that idea. You see, God's sovereign. There's nothing beyond him. I'm not too worried about this dictator or this leader if I believe God's in control. I believe God's going to work all things, all things for good to those who love God. Sovereign Lord. And what set out this prayer meeting above all others is they knew who God was, and that's where they started. <laughs> it's amazing. You know, Jacob is a guy in the Bible made a statement that all of us kind of make from time to time. He said, everything is against me. The moment he said that, everything was actually for him because he thought he had lost his treasured son, Joseph, and Joseph was in the safest hands at that particular time and was in control. There was a great famine. He was in control of the food source. And he thought that because another son was kept by Joseph and his other sons reported, hey, we've, now we've lost two guys. He thought everything was against him, and they were starving to death. There was, there was a great famine. At the moment he said that, everything was for him because his sons weren't dead, and Joseph was in control of all the food, would bring his family to Egypt. They would flourish and prosper and have the best land and become millions of people. And the moment he said, everything is against me, everything was actually for him. Now see, this is what your life is like. You think sometimes everything's against you, but maybe you're, that's just 
If your life is a book, and maybe what you're going through is a sentence, and the very next sentence reads, but God. Maybe it's just a paragraph or a page, and then you turn the page. There's a whole different story, but God. You see, that's why in the moment I will not despair because he is sovereign God. God is sovereign. So they told God who he was, then they told God what he had done. Now, God didn't forget who he was and he didn't forget what he's done, but we need to remind ourselves of who he is and what he's done. They said, you made heaven and earth. How many of you know that's a pretty big deal? Yeah. And, And it is good to pray to remind ourselves of how big God is, not only who he is, but what he's done. And you can go to Scripture, and he divided the Red Sea, and he took a little shepherd boy with a slingshot and brought down the greatest, mightiest warrior of all time, Goliath. He did all those things. He shut the mouths of lions, and Daniel wasn't eaten up. I mean... Three, three of his friends were thrown into a fiery furnace. They didn't burn up. That's pretty big stuff. These are things that God has done. But God's done things in your life. And one of the advantages of being an older guy, and maybe I'm the oldest guy here, one of the advantages, I have a whole history of what God has done. I stand on that. Can I just tell you one story quick? Uh, when I was 18, I came to my house because I felt an impression to go home. I was going to go shopping for some clothes for college, a week away from college. And my dad came in the house. Something was wrong. He crawled in the house. He rolled over on his back. He had a convulsion. And I rushed to him and I picked him up. And when I picked him up, the air went out of his lungs like that. And he didn't breathe anymore. And his eyes, his blue eyes were set open. I just held him there. You don't know what you'll do in a situation like that. By the way, we were really poor. We didn't even have a phone. I couldn't call anyone for help. My mom suffered a lot from uh, emotional issues. and uh, She was in bad, bedfast, really. She was incapable of functioning at that time. I had two sisters at home. And what happened to me was responsibility came on me. <laughs> I thought, I can't go to college. I need to. My mom is incapable of raising my sisters. I had to become the man of the house. I have to. My father's died. Responsibility came on me. I held him there for about 20 minutes. And all these thoughts and plans and how I was to respond and how I was going to tell my mom. I worked, we were working it all out. I love my dad. Yeah, but... It was, for that moment, there was no time for grief. It was just a time for responsibility. And in my thoughts, it was like a a soft suggestion, tell him to live. I did. I said, Dad, live. And his lungs reinflated. (gasps) He batted his eyes and he was back. Boop. How many find that's a reasonably good thing to look back on what God has done? Yeah. Now, there's lots of other things, not quite as dramatic. But 
when, you, when you're in a dilemma, he's God. This is what he's done. That's where I'm going to pray. I'm not going to start with a problem. And then they told God what he said, who through the mouth of your father David, your servant, said by the Holy Spirit, why do the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers gathered together against the Lord, against his anointed. Effective prayers anchored on the word. My emotions can go this way or that. My perspective can change until I look into Scripture. And that doesn't change. The Bible says the Word is a lamp to my feet and a light to my path. If I don't have that, it's dark. I know where to put my feet. and I know what direction to go. The Bible says that the Word is the bread of life. And so a pattern in prayer is... To tell God what he said, in order to tell God what he said, you have to know what he said. And that's why we read the Bible, study, and fill ourselves up with Scripture. And then last of all, this is how they requested. After worshiping God, this is worship. All of this is worship. Worship involves all that we are. He says, they said, grant to your servants to continue to speak your word with boldness. Stretch out your hand to heal in signs and wonders are performed. They said, we want to continue to be a people of word and deed. It's just not enough sharing Jesus. You also have to demonstrate Jesus. And they were a people of word and deed. I love what happened then. When they prayed, and I, I like to add a couple of words to scripture, but I don't think Jesus minds. When they prayed like this, when they prayed like that, the whole place was shaken. And I think what that is, is God was so delighted in their prayer, he let them have a demonstration of his power and presence. They were filled with the Holy Spirit. Let me finish with this last statement of going back to Spurgeon. I think you'll find it a blessing. All hell is vanquished when the believer bows his knee in supplication. Beloved brethren, let us pray. We cannot all argue, but we can all pray. We cannot all be leaders, but we can all be pleaders. We cannot all be mighty in rhetoric, but we can all be prevailing in prayer. And I would rather sooner see you eloquent with God than with men. Prayer links us with the eternal, the omnipotent, the infinite, and hence it is our chief resort. Be sure that you are with God, and then you can be sure that God is with you. What's your battle? He's God. Listen, as you know, one church, multiple locations, our Kirkwood location, which is our newest one, uh, we are going for a piece of property and going for uh, a building. And there's several little, little things you have to jump through, hoops you have to jump through with city councils and planning commissions and all that stuff including those in that same park. They have to agree. And we jumped through every one of those hoops. It's been wonderful. It's been like, hey, well, we're sailing, we're sailing. And we get right to the end, and city council has been uh, favorable all the way. We get to the end last week, and city council has their meeting to vote. This is the final deal, and we're underway, construction of a new building. And four voted yes. And four voted no. And it was a tie vote. And the mayor cast a deciding vote, no. 
Can I tell you that I was slightly disappointed? But I tell you something else. I come back to this. God's in control. It's not over till he says it's over. And therefore, I want to challenge you to join with us all. That let's pray that God changes hearts and minds. What do you think of that? I want to fight for it with Jesus. Let's go for it. And so I want to lead us in prayer right now, and I want to challenge you, please be praying. God, change hearts and minds, provide a way that this goes forward. Opposition is not new to the church. This church here has had it throughout its history, and we've always carried it through in prayer. I'm encouraged. Let's, Let's stand.